And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Crowds up. Spurs are up. Richarlison. Kulisevsky with him. Kulisevsky! Hello everybody and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the award-winning Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. Joining me today, your jovial host, Danny Kelly, are The Athletic's Tim Spears and Charlie Eccleshare, and our special guest, because she knows Brazilian football and she knows Richarlison, uh, Natalie Gedra. Hello everybody. On today's episode, we'll discuss a late, late show as Spurs scored not one, but two stoppage time goals to beat Sheffield United. We'll also talk about Richarlison with Natalie because she's a Brazilian football journalist and because the last time we had her on to talk about him, she was so brilliant. Um, and we'll take some of your questions a little later on. Um, people who listen to my other outlets will know that uh, I was in London as late as Friday afternoon and people were saying, why don't you stay safe for the Spurs? Oh, no, I wanted to get home and all the rest of it. I guess after 98 minutes, I was pretty glad I'd gone home and not had to go and see Spurs losing at home to Sheffield United. After 111, or whatever it was, 111 minutes, whatever number it was mathematically, I can tell you now I am absolutely full right up to the fronts of my eyes with bitterness that I didn't stay and see that game, even if I had got a ticket. Charlie and Tim, you were there in person. Um, what, what did you make of it uh, overall? And really, we can cut to the, what did you make of the last 15 minutes, really, can't we? Charlie? Yeah, I, I don't. Well, I don't think there's anything. There are certainly few things sweeter than a turning a defeat into victory with a couple of late goals. It's an incredible feeling having that. And there's always that thing when you get one, there's just this feeling of inevitability. You know, we're going to do it. We're going to get another one. And it really felt like that. Throw in the fact to do it against a team that had been time-wasting like Sheffield United had. And so the only reason that you were playing so late was as a direct consequence of their time wasting. And it was just to have joy mixed with schadenfreude is just an amazing cocktail. And that's what Saturday was. It really doesn't get much better than that. You know, so that hence the wild celebrations. It doesn't matter who you're playing because also you, you start to hate the opposition so much. You start to hate players that you probably hadn't heard of before that day with such a burning passion and then to have that release is, yeah, it's just what being a football fan is all about. To give them a metaphorical slap around the back of the head is a great joy, isn't it? When they're being booked for time wasting before they've taken the lead. Tim, what did you make of it? Because that, you know, you're um, you're not, you know, haven't been our regular Spurs correspondent. Now you're fully indoctrinated in the, in the true way. Um, what about the stadium after the first goal went in? The limbs were insane, actually. I, I, lo- I loved the Richarlison goal because I don't think 
a lot of the people in the stadium knew who'd scored because he didn't sort of linger and celebrate on his own. He was sort of, you know, back to centre circle and was huddled straight away. Because he's going to win the game, of course, yeah. Exactly. And then and then his picture came up and they said who'd scored on the on the screen and on the speaker system. And there was a, there was the cheer was as as loud as for the goal, really. Everyone was so so happy with the identity of the goal scorer. And then obviously yeah, the the winner, the limbs in the south sand were just crazy and the celebrations lasted a good sort of at least five minutes, there was nobody leaving after full time with the players and then Postacoglu. And then, uh, I mean, I left the stadium like an hour and a half after full time and they were still singing in the streets. They're still stood outside the pubs. They're still que- uh, queuing to get into Chick King. People are smiling. And like it was similar after the, the Man United game, but you don't expect it for Sheffield United at home as well. So, um, yeah, really, you can feel it. You can really feel it when you're in the stadium. It's one thing watching it and talking about it. And yeah, Spurs are great and Spurs are different, but you can feel something transforming and a bit of a revolution happening. It's quite powerful, to be honest. And Natalie, um, I don't think you were there, but later on we'll talk about the wider issues surrounding Richarlison, who, as you say, you know. Um, but watching him get the equaliser and then assisting the winner um, after the... Never mind the, the months he's had, after the week he'd had with the disallowed goal for Brazil and all the rest of it. I mean, it, it must have been... Well, what did you make of the fact that it was Richarlison who turned the game for Spurs? Oh, it's such a great story. I really... I've, I've seen... I've said this before. I really like Richarlison because he's such a lovely guy. And I know sometimes he come across very differently. But when I saw that he scored a goal, I, I instantly thought he really has this power of turning adversity uh, to his favor. And we've seen this happening throughout his career in other moments, but we haven't seen it much at Spurs. At Spurs, things were different. They, he, he didn't seem comf- uh, comfortable or confident and with things that's been, that's been happening in his personal life. And after everything that he said and, and just, you see how passion can really have an effect on, on his game, either if it's a positive effect or a negative effect. He's a very emotional guy. So when he gives the interview after international break and he talks about his struggles, it's all very spontaneous. And, and he is this type of guy. He's very, he's very spontaneous. And and when you see the goal and you kind of see that that switch, you know, the, the passion coming and, and all the feelings, uh, he just leaves everything on the pitch. And and I, I really like this from him because you can see that this all the time. If you speak to him, if you interview him, if you see him play. Uh, and I, I hope he can uh, have more of these moments of turning this this fire that he has into something positive. Yeah, we'll talk more about what's happened to him with you in a, in a few minutes' time. Um, one personal thing about it, um, the uh, the Spurs celebrations at the end were, never um, mind the limbs, on the pitch they were quite insane as well. Um, and, of course, that meant on social media, look at Spurs celebrating like they've won the Champions League. Do shut up. Shut your fat faces, every one of you. Um, listen, not only had no, we'd never seen this before in English football, an equaliser and a winner so late into a game, and ignore the fact that, in fact, the Spurs were breaking their own record for this, Leicester, um, 18 months ago. Um, all that proves, of course, is that Spurs keep going sometimes and that they're often behind towards the ends of the game. So it's not that. But the rest of you, shut up. I mean, it was only a minority. I don't think there was that much celebration policing, was there? Oh, I saw. There were, maybe I, it was more in my timeline then, perhaps. 
um, Charlie, because, um, you know, people want to needle me about it, really. And they have done. And, and, and you know, let people support the club whatever way they want. Hello, Potsdokoglu, who said much the same thing afterwards about being overconfident. And I'm going to say something that I promised myself I wouldn't say on the podcast because real life and football are slightly different things. But in the court, anyone who follows me on Twitter will know in the course of the last week, I have lost not one but two people. Um, they weren't very close friends. They were work colleagues. Um, one of them, 35 years of age, she got a brain tumor and died. And Maddie Arnho, who I did a show with six or seven, ten, nine years ago, she was absolutely wonderful. And so it reminded me, and Giles Carruthers, who used to work at TalkSport for years, has shuffled off his mortal coil. Look, if you need reminding, these are the things that remind you. The good things in life are not guaranteed. They're not always permanent. So for God's sake, you know, open, open the top of the bottle and let it out. Enjoy things while you can, because the rest of it, the stuff that will slap me down, it will be along as sure as the next German train. It will be absolutely as reliably along as that. So allow everyone else to support the club how they want, their own club. And if they over-celebrate, it's okay. You should enjoy that. If you're one of those things, look at them over-celebrate. Enjoy it, because next week or the week after or the week after, Spurs will stub their toe, fall flat on their face, and you can enjoy that. Can, can I say as well, Danny, it was one of those games, I've, I've had this conversation with people before, but where you just think, imagine not having football in your life, because it can it can do this to you. And at the, I don't know, I just, I honestly am just so grateful to have it. And I do, like, there's something I think, God, what else can, you know, an experience like that, again, for something seemingly so run of the mill, a home game against Sheffield United, which would seem so... As if, you know, hence your decision would have seemed a smart one in, in a way not to go to that game. Because, you know, you're Sheffield United at home, you're thinking it's hardly going to be this sort of like amazing out-of-body experience. And yet, you you know, it just does things to you. I'm sure there were so many fans who still, when they went to bed, couldn't sleep because the adrenaline's still cursing through them. And Adrenaline, chick king and lager. Yeah, you're <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just an amazing thing. Now you make you make a you make a very pertinent point. Of course, these feelings that Spurs fans enjoyed this week, someone else will get next week, and it makes the game unique. And uh, added to that, I think Tim is the fact that the English Premier League um, is, you know, obviously Manchester City and one or two others are way way ahead, but still the teams at the bottom can threaten the the better teams, and so that you know every game is a possibility of something amazing happening. I mean, Sheffield United fans would have had a brilliant day. If their, you know, totally undeserved goal had won them the game, and I, th- I think the Premier League still does that as well as almost any league in the world. The German, the Bundesliga, the, the, the bottom teams do have a go as well. Certainly, we had more of a go than Sheffield United had. Everybody except Luton can do something, Danny, by the look of things. And um, yeah, I, th- I was impressed with Sheffield United actually, and th- they had their moment as well. I mean, you know, the, their celebrations. We talk about celebrations. Theirs for the for the opening goal which is, of course, scored right in front of them. They, they were something special. I don't know what their emotions would have been travelling home, but they would have had an amazing day up until the 96th minute and certainly not what they were expecting either. So um, I, I know a lot more about Sheffield United than I did before the game. I was saying to Charlie uh, in the opening minutes, I know as little about Sheffield United as any other Premier League team, I think. Um, but by the end, you knew all about Ollie McBurney's traffic light boots and uh, Wes Fodderingham's spoiling tactics. And yeah, interesting game. Very interesting game. Learned a lot. I mean, we should say as well, Danny, that were it not for this new um, directive about clamping down on time wasting in seasons gone by, e- even with that same amount of time wasting, there was a sort of unwritten rule that you just don't get more than seven minutes, maybe eight maximum. So they cert- they wouldn't have won this game. Maybe they could have drawn if it had been a very generous referee back in the day. But 
yeah, otherwise we'd be sat here talking about a game that ended after 96 minutes and Spurs had lost 1-0. And I mean, you know, Paul Heckenbottom, of course he was disappointed going on about it and and other other things. And the refereeing wasn't great. You know, the Madison penalty incident was stupid and the VAR, what are they doing there for? Um, but the time-wasting thing, it, stri- it strikes me, is I can't think of a more welcome directive from the administrators of football. People, um, you know, People are paying huge amounts of money to watch football. To see teams deliberately denying them the ball in play, for instance, that's one of the ways you time waste. Um, never mind you're trying to close down the opposition, but you're actually denying playing time. I mean, it's like, honestly, it's like you paid 100 quid to go to the theatre to see, to see um, uh, you know, Shakespeare, and they only do the first two acts. That's enough for us, thanks. <laughs> I'm sure you enjoyed that. It was just great. Finn, down comes the curtain. No, no one would tolerate that. It's a theatre got in flames. Spoiler um, it's, tactics it's, from some of the extras. Oh, yeah, and doing the soliloquies really, really slowly. Friends, <laughs> Romans, and the, re- the referee walks towards the soliloquy. Countryman just in time to avoid a yellow card. Um, Natsy, what do you... I mean, we, we don't get a chance to talk to you that, that often, um, but you're, you've seen football in, you know, obviously in other countries as well. The... The, the the mania that surrounds English football when the supporters, I think, are what makes it. Um, because, you know, the Spurs fans were going crazy after, you know, a, a routine win, you could argue, at Sheffield United. What's been your experience of the way English football is? It's very interesting because especially this season with the, the added time and, and the, the longer matches, I find it really funny how how fans are already adapting very quickly. Like uh, you get extra time, you get like six, seven minutes and you hear fans like saying, oh, mowing and just, <laughs> what? Only six minutes? Yeah. Only seven minutes? What's happening with that? And, and we've seen this happen in so many matches. And I find it very interesting how here in England, uh, time wasting is really uh, a thing. Is 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 really a problem. Is is an issue because for for South Americans, it's very very annoyingly common, especially when you play Libertadores, uh, the, the continental uh, tournament, and Argentinians, Uruguayans, Colombians. They're really they're really good in time wasting. So not, you grow not up. Brazilians, we noticed. No, of course not. No. no. <laughs> we're, we're we're still learning. We're still learning. We know nothing about that. So no. So no. Really, we we really got used to it. We we grow up getting used to time wasting, and I find it I find it really nice that they are actually trying to do something about it. But the reaction of the fans and and everything that comes after, because I was at Arsenal and United uh, before the international break, and we had uh, goals on extra time as well, and now. That that match, uh, Spurs uh, Sheffield United, it, it could it could be a flat match, but we had twelve extra minutes, and and then it turned into this, and and it's it's really interesting to see because Sheffield United they they made things really hard for Man City before, so they clearly have a plan for this kind of of matches and they for this kind of situation, and it was working until minute ninety eight. So so yeah. I mean, it is it is really interesting as well, like what it does now for managers re things like their substitutions, because Postacoglu didn't make a change to the 80th minute. And I think again, you know, a lot of the fans and media were thinking, why, why is he leaving it so late? This is crazy. But I, I asked him afterwards how conscious he was that there was going to be a load of injury time because it's quite important to know that. And he said, yes, he was. He had a sense it would be about 10 minutes. 
even at that point. So those players were in fact getting 20 minutes game time. Yeah, kind of, which yeah. is a really big difference, isn't it? Because if you're a fan and it's the 70th minute versus the 80th minute, you're going to be a lot, that's going to, you're going to be very different in terms of how like antsy you are about no subs. So I think we're going to have to get used to this as supporters and as journalists, because it, it was really weird. The, the board goes up and it's 12 minutes. I'm thinking, God, it's actually like the 78th minute. That's not that late. You know, <laughs> there is still like... Well, you've seen lots of time. games won from yeah. the 75th minute onwards, haven't yeah, you? Of exactly. course, yeah. So yeah. it does... Um, Brilliant. It, it does sort of change the picture. I would just say one other thing, and this was something Tim and I talked about kind of when, I think, when 12 went up. You do slightly have to question how well, how much control a referee has had on it if you're having to add on another 12 minutes. I mean... Referees have yellow cards. They have that deterrent. I do wonder why they don't use them more. Well, the the the, the foddering one was ridiculous, Charlie, because he got he got booked for handball in yeah. the first half. He didn't actually get booked for time wasting, no, despite no. all the time waste he did, which was a lot. And he would a hundred percent have been booked yeah. if he hadn't been booked yeah. for handball in the first half. So that was so the ref. Charlie, it strikes me. Yes, very sorry, Tim. The the yellow cards not being handed out because they're always afraid to give out yellow cards in case you end up six against seven. But they're clearly being told how much added time to put on. We don't have official timekeepers, but they are being told. I don't think the referees are deciding 12 minutes. They're being told. No, no, absolutely. But but, but that even more supports the point because it's basically, you know, it's like your superior saying, yeah, I'm afraid to say there's been so much time wasted, which is, you know, kind of players taking the piss a little bit. And we're going to need an extra almost 30% of the half. But the the sub-psychological thing here is that if, you know, in my mind, I think it's good. The team that's doing the time wasting is being punished here. Instead of with yellow cards, they're getting 12 extra minutes. But of course, you're going to get a situation where the team that's been time wasting suddenly finds themselves behind and they'll be rewarded by the extra time. But you can't make that moral judgment. They're wasting the time, therefore they won't get it. Tim, I stopped you in mid-flight there. I beg your pardon. No, no, I was just going to have a bit, bit of a rant about the referee, to be honest, because it was, it was one of many decisions that he got, that he got wrong. Let me say one other thing in the interest of fairness. Um, we're all being. I was being critical of Sheffield United and the way they played. I, I, I don't see how that's entertained for their fans, but of course they nearly got away with it. But Spurs fans, we don't need to be getting on about Sheffield United. There's lots of people again we're doing in real time because that's exactly how Spurs played for the last three years. We don't. Let's not forget that very quickly. That sitting on the edge of our box and hoping to get something from a set piece was exactly how Spurs have played. And, and fail to entertain people over the last three years, so no Not room totally, for criticism. Danny. I think that's. I think that is a little harsh. There's a bit of revisionism with Conte. A bit. I'm. I'm, I'm all for it. I'm. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm airbrushing him out of history. Fully rewriting history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but a bit. Why would I go in for a bit? No, you're all right. To be absolutely scrupulously fair, there was the end of the last two months of the season before last, where they played some decent stuff. There. Does that do? Does that help? Uh, yeah, that that goes somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. But, He's the, the revision police. I don't like that. Um, Tim, just give us a run through reasonably quickly because I'm sure everyone's watched the game now, at least the highlights, 20 times. Um, who were the stars for Spurs? Richarlison's late um, act, which we'll come on to in a second, notwithstanding. Yeah, Richarlison, I thought Kulisevsky stepped up a little bit. Uh, it was, I mean, it was his fault for the goal, so it was it was, it was a bit of redemption, actually, for for, for the winner for him. Um it was a bit more of a. It was a frustrating afternoon, Danny. By all accounts, I thought Madison was was shut down a bit in the second half, which played uh, a big part. You know, Sheffield United's tactics. You know, five at the back, deep line defence, particularly in the second half. 
But to be honest, the game went pretty much as expected because Sheffield United have conceded the most shots in the Premier League this season and Spurs have had the most shots. So you expected that. You expected a frustrating afternoon. And, um, you know, in true uh, view from the lane fashion, uh, I did I did suggest as much last week, Danny, you'll remember, and that Richarlison, it was sort of the game for him to come on and uh, it was more suited to him. I thought Spurs... Spurs found it a bit frustrating in terms of Son didn't get much space in behind the defence, which again you'd expect. And most of the shots were going to their midfielders, Bissouma and Saar, whose like goal scoring record is is a, is a slight concern. Really, they don't look like naturals in front of goal. So yeah, I, I would say from a Spurs point of view, I did think that they let Sheffield United's tactics and the referee sort of go to their heads a little bit, and they lost clarity of thought in the second half, and their patterns of attack were a bit muddled. And yeah, I was expecting changes from Postacoglu. They they came late. They came after the goal. I was I was expecting. I know we talked earlier about the amount of stoppage time, but I was expecting them earlier than that because Spurs just looked like they lacked yeah clarity. Thought and was trying were, were desperate, starting to get a bit desperate. They were trying to win penalties, and you couldn't see it coming for uh, for a period of time. Well, if you, so, didn't, yeah. if you didn't get the penalty for Madison, you're not going to get them for diving, are you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they were they were going down far too easily after that. But yeah, it was um it, it was it was an afternoon for for patience, as it turned out, an awful lot. First of, patience. of all, because Natalie is a stranger to the pod, although a very welcome stranger. Twenty one minutes there, Natalie, before somebody said, "Now I was right about this." It's the mm-hmm. it's absolute <laughs> trademark. He was right about Richarlison. Absolute trademark of the podcast. I was right. Although I did tell Natalie before we started recording what I'm about to say, which is taking credit, and I'm glad Tim teed me up, so I wasn't the first one to do it. But <laughs> Dan Kilpatrick will back me up here if he doesn't he's he's bullshitting when Perisic went to take the corner I said to Dan Spurs are going to score here near post header which is what happened and he then looked at me in that way you know that Henri and Carragher thing that had where he puts his hand on his knee and Carragher looks really weirdly at the camera it, re- it reminded me of that look from Dan it's like a, oh my god sure you did Charlie, yeah. <laughs> sure, sure you said that I didn't say anything of this sort but I, I've been thinking it one of the ways that you have to replace um, Kane's prodigious output is with expertise. And what, what I mean by that is people have got to do the things they're very good at. And the, the equalizer was Perisic, who has his, you know, detractors, but he can kick He's a dead brilliant ball. He's a brilliant deliverer of a football. And it went to a place where defenders would not want it. And then you have to have somebody who can head a football. Everybody heads the ball, but then there are people who, who are good at actually heading it. And Richarlison's one of those. Again, we've not seen enough of that because the you know the Premier League doesn't go for headed goals, and so you've got one piece of expertise added to another piece of expertise, and that I suppose is going to need a lot of those in the course of the next nine months to make up, as I say, for the output that we're getting from Kane. Also, we should give Natalie her due because the two times she's come, we've asked her to come on. Well, both the only two games in which Richarlison has scored at home for Spurs have bit, have followed us saying to Natalie, "Can you come on the pod following the game?" Uh, it can't be a coincidence. She, no, he, know, coincidence. he knows he needs to turn it on, so she has nice things to say about him. Yeah. Well, let, let's, t- let's turn to that because otherwise we're wasting Natalie and that would be a shame. Um, and we'll talk about Postacoglu talking about the mental health issues, but let's take the much wider picture here. Um, you know him better than the rest of us. Nat- Natalie, you can also read what's going on in the Brazilian press in a way that, you know, just I'm sure, I'm sure Tim and particularly Charlie will have learned Portuguese for, the, for this very purpose. What has been going on? Can you, what detail can you add to what we're hearing so far about Richarlison, who came out after his substitution playing for Brazil, the tears? Give us a timeline of what, what's been going on up, up to this point where he gets his goal, and hopefully it'll be some redemption. But looking back three, four, 15 months, I don't know what's been going on. What do you know? 
I think there's there's obviously the the adaptation time and and the him not getting along with Conte and and we've already discussed this once how he gets along with managers who are more affection towards him uh, affectuous towards him like Marco Silva was at Watford uh, Ancelotti and teaching the national squad so Richarlison and Conte they were not a good match period. And then in the past few months, uh, he's been going through some some problems in his personal life because he's been with this agent for a very very long time, and and uh, this this uh, this agent of him, uh, they, they have a very close relationship. It's not only a, a professional relationship. When when Richardson moved to to London, I remember going to his house to make to do an interview with him, and he was there with his agent, uh, the the wife's agent and barely furniture like really it was just that and he was helping him with everything and he moved to London as well to help Richardson so Richardson is very close to his family but he this guy is kind of like a second father to him and and recently in the past few months he's been going through his agent he has been going through some personal issues and Richardson kind of getting got involved with with these personal issues that also uh, were related a, a little bit with money as well. So Richardson is this really emotional guy. Uh, and we this is very clear if you see it on the pitch. Uh, he's very emotional. But he, he, he wasn't able to uh, set things apart, you know. He was having this situation with his in his life and Brazilian press was reporting that he and his agent uh, were not together anymore. They were not working together anymore. And this is not clear yet if his agent is still with him or not. But the fact is, uh, they are getting along better. Like The situation uh, as a whole is better. But these past few months were, were an issue, and this is very common with, with Brazilian players. Once they, uh, they they have a fallout with their agents or people who are very close to, to him or to them, uh, other people approach this player trying to, you know, uh, offering help, but in the end, trying to get money. So it's uh, with footballers, this happens all the time. They have people all around them all the time. And sometimes it's even family. It's not this case, but sometimes it's even family trying to get money from them. And and this all this mess has been happening uh, with Richardson in the past few months. And I think the fact that he kind of broke down when he was in the national team is related to the fact that he's very comfortable there. He feels very embraced. And he loves being the national team, and and he's he's home. He's literally home. He's in Brazil, so uh, there's all this context. And he said, "It's not that I had a bad match against Bolivia. I wasn't crying over that. It's just that everything, just like I I just let the emotions uh, flow. And after uh, the match against Peru, when he when he spoke to the media, I remember after the Man United match, Spurs Man United, I was speaking to Charlie, actually, I was telling him this story. I went to the mix zone and I wanted to speak to Richardson. And Richardson walked by with, with Emerson Royale. And I, I asked if he could give a word. And he was like, yeah, sure. And he left and said, you think I'm going to say something stupid? You like it when we when I say something <laughs> stupid on the interviews. And then we all left. And Emerson was like, don't ask him any tough questions because he's going to say something stupid. <laughs> and, and then it just, it becomes this joke and he jokes about it because he's very emotional, even with his words. So people say, oh, Richarlison was very brave 
speaking about his mental health issues. But that's like it wasn't something that he planned. I am absolutely positive because he says the wrong things and he says the right things because he is very genuine. So he comes and and he gives this interview talking about his mental health issues. And then he comes to Spurs, comes back. He doesn't start the match, but he he takes his chance. And and it's just really a nice story. And it's really nice to see how how the players also embraced him and, and took him to, to the fans. So, Natalie, in your judgment, and again, you're not on the inside of this, I know, um, the problems he's had, they're soluble, are they? They can be dealt with. And when he talks about need, getting help, um, is has he allowed himself to become so muddled up that he does actually need professional help? Or if, if the other thing was solved, the problem with his agent and other hangers-on, um, would that solve the mental health issue in and of itself? I think it's two separate things. I think his his problems are definitely solvable and, and it's, he's going to sort it out completely, definitely. And with the, the help of a professional, it's very interesting. And I, I'm constantly speaking to my friends here and I've had this conversation with Charlie a few times as well. I think in Brazil, uh, and I speak from experience, it is very common that people go to therapy. Like people, they speak more openly about it. Almost everyone I know has a therapist and, and it's more accepted in, in a way. But we're speaking about uh, the football environment. So it is very uh, like toxic masculinity oriented. And, and in this sense, it is really nice and really brave that he comes and he talks about getting help, getting help from a, from a therapist or, or from a psychiatrist. And just to give you an example, last season I was speaking to Ederson, Man City's goalkeeper, and Ederson after the the World Cup, he because there was this big talk about mental health after the World Cup because of the way Brazil left uh, Qatar, and Ederson said, "No, I have a therapist. I've been going to a therapist for a year now, and I've done sessions during the World Cup actually because for me it was a game changer and it's very important, and I recommend it to everyone." So it happens. I think it happens. They speak more more openly about it uh, there, but not so openly because it is the football environment. So in this sense, uh, I, I was surprised that uh, he spoke about it because every time a footballer speaks about it, it it's it's really nice. But in a way, it, it is part of of people's lives. And I guess I guess looking at my colleagues here, the difference between what you're describing in Brazil. Um, and the, I'm going to say this, you know, it's my experience. The Anglo-Saxon world just doesn't deal. It's getting much better, but, you know, stiff upper lip, Victorian England, all that stuff, it still has an amazing power to close people down in the society in which we all live and work. Um, if I might move on, excuse me, Tim, Charlie, you spoke, it was you who started to ask Ange Postacoglu about the uh, the issues of mental health in in in, in, in Richarlison's case, but he then opened it out to the more general thing. That was you, I think. I heard your voice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was... So he'd been asked about Richarlison um, more generally earlier on in the press conference, and he talked a bit about Richarlison and then opened it up. But then I, w- I wanted to ask him, yeah, kind of more uh, more the sport as a whole. And I, so I asked him where he thought football was at with mental health and its importance. I think we do understand it. It's just that we, we, we ignore it. But, you know, what? Who's, who in their life doesn't have something that's stressful? 
I mean, I've, I've lived 58 years now and there's never been a time in my life where everything is perfect. You know, I lost my father three years ago and he should have been here for the journey. So I've got to deal with that. Everyone, and that's just me talking personally, but everybody, everyone in this room at this moment, you could be, one part of your life could be flying and but there'll be something, it could be a family member, it could be a health issue, it could be a financial issue. There's always something and, and footballers are not immune from that. And sometimes I think they fall into the trap of thinking they are and they're not because just because you have you know, money or, or, or you're really good at something, um, life will still find a way to keep a balance in that there'll be stuff in there that that's going to be stressful, it's going to be upsetting and, and you've got to just deal with that. You know? He said some things that really resonated with me. Um, one of which was that what he finds, and, and I'd never thought of this, but I can so imagine it. He says that often with footballers, they almost feel like a guilt in, you know, having psychological issues or whatever because they're getting paid a fortune. They're living everyone's dream. They might even be in great form, but that doesn't insulate you necessarily from having issues. We all have issues. And even in like my own way, I sometimes feel it that I'll be like, I'll feel guilty because I'm like, I've had so much privilege in my life. I'm healthy. I've got two healthy boys, whatever. And I feel, you know, I'm really angry at the world today. And I'm like, and, and I feel then angry at myself because it's like, who are you to have, you know, to have this sort of feeling given how fortunate you are? Multiply that, you know, however many times if you're a high rolling Premier League footballer living everyone's dream. And so I think it was just a reminder from him that everyone has things going on in their lives. It was just a really human, empathetic response. And then I asked him kind of, you know, do enough people understand what you're talking about? And he said something that was really striking, which was... I don't think anyone doesn't understand. I think, like I said, I just think we choose to ignore it. We just at times think, well, he's a footballer, he's got money, what's he got to complain about? You know, well, of course he does. But then the footballer has to also understand that, you know, his life is not, you know, perfection doesn't exist in life. There are, you know, plenty of people, you know, who, who have what we would assume to have all the advantages in life who are fairly unhappy. You know, so that's not that, that doesn't exist. So it's just a matter of, I think for the most part, people are, you know, understand that that's the case and empathetic. Sometimes we just choose to ignore it because it, it makes a better, not a better story, but it just makes a more impactful kind of scenario that, you know, wow, you know, fantastic footballer has problems. They all do, mate. You know, they all do. Which is an amazing thing to say really that you know it's it's not that we're not aware of people having these issues it's just that we'd rather put it to the backs of our minds because for a lot of people Rashardus and Jusib as an example is not a person he's a potential scorer of goals or and an ATM and an ATM with legs you know we, we yeah all, exactly yeah. and I and I think as well I would just want to say like <laughs> You then had Wes Fodderingham, the Sheffield United goalkeeper, speaking about some of the abuse he suffered. Which, of course, we should, we should mention, absolutely. Which is terrible. And I just think it's so... This is a recurring theme that we, in one breath, applaud people for talking about mental health and these sorts of things. And I'm sure a lot of, a lot of Spurs fans, you know, who... Well, I don't know this, but, you know, he, was, he then got abuse from Spurs fans, supposedly... And I'm sure lots of those people who are abusing him were only a day earlier applauding Postacoglu for talking about these issues and about how we shouldn't dehumanise footballers. And then there we are again, dehumanising someone like it. You know, and it's, 
as as he himself said, it's fine to you know get at me during the game, but don't don't take it beyond that into you know areas of race and his per, family, you know, family yeah. issues. Yeah, it's just it's just awful. And so I think we need to there needs to be more of an appreciation all the time rather than at just these big moments. Same with someone like Deli Ali, where everyone, of course, they said, great, that's brilliant that he's spoken about it. But then in the next breath, we're, <laughs> we're abusing some other footballer or, you know, not really giving due thought to why they might be struggling. Listen, we're going to have a break now. We're going to uh, let Natalie go because we're moving off the uh, topic of Richard. So she can talk about everything, but there's a lot of us in the, in the pod here today. Um, given, given what you know, given an, that the moment of his equaliser and then making the winner for Richarlison, um, do you think we're going to see the best of him now? It's hard to tell and maybe get 15 goals between now and, and April. Yeah, it is really hard to tell. I, I could I could sit here and say, no, this is a turning point for Richarlison. He's gonna, now he's going to score all the goals we're expecting him to score. But the truth is, uh, all I can say is that the football is there. He's brilliant. He was brilliant in other spells of his career. He's brilliant with the national team. And he just needs to sort things out. I think things are more favorable now, in a sense, uh, uh, for him this season with a new manager. Of course, he needs to adapt as well uh, with the style. But I think when once he sorts his himself out, uh, I don't see why we we wouldn't see a huge improvement because he knows the responsibility and he's been he's been talking about it openly. I know I have a bigger responsibility now to score goals. So he needs to deal with this as well and, and incorporate that in, in a positive way. And I really hope this happens. Hi, everyone. David Ornstein here. And I want to tell you about The Athletic's new bite-sized podcast, The Daily Football Briefing. If you're one of those people who are just too busy for a regular-length podcast in the morning, this is right up your street. In just over 10 minutes, we'll bring you bang up to date with the biggest stories in football all before you've finished your first coffee of the day. It'll be Matt Slater on a club's ongoing takeover saga, our club experts reflecting on big overnight matches, and let's be honest, me explaining those transfer stories that just won't go away. That's the Daily Football Briefing, every weekday morning, available wherever you get your podcasts. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Yeah, welcome back to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Tim Spears is here. So is Charlie Eckershaw. We've let Natalie go, brilliant though she was. A um, couple of bits of news. Um, one of them, just a fact, that uh, Jed Spence will be out for several weeks with a knee ligament injury. That was announced by Daniel Farker. No talk about surgery at this stage, but another setback for that lad. Jamie Vardy warming up uh, the crowd at a BBC, Two, uh, radio, a BBC Radio 2 in the Park Festival. Um, shouted out where are the Tottenham fans in the style of Jack Wilshere, another one who I've got no time for. Uh, after that question was met with a course of booze, he said, "Still got no bottle." Jamie, your team got relegated last year, mate. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be keeping that neck slightly on on on, on the dial. Put it on in neck in, uh, Jamie. Um, Chris Cowlin, who works on a rival Spurs podcast, and therefore we shouldn't be um, advertising. But of course, we are open to all competition here. Um, and it made a brilliant joke, a physical joke about Sheffield United's time wasting. He tweeted a picture of their bus after the game. Sheffield United bus down the high road. I pressed the button at three different crossings to waste time. Some will say it's childish. I call it karma. He was delaying the Sheffield United bus getting out of Dodge. Fantastic. Um, let's um, do this the rest of the podcast with some questions, some really good questions as well. Uh, you know that you now get hold of us by email um, and uh, on Twitter and, uh, and answer que- ask questions. Look, we can't answer them all. Some of them aren't worth answering, but the good ones, we'll get them on. Really interesting from Ian Greaves here. Um, do we need to introduce, and very, very pertinent given the discussion we had about the extra time uh, being added on for time wasting in particular, do we need to introduce a countdown clock for goalkeepers to kick the ball out? Tennis has an equivalent. And then he says, because you're all radio producers, cue Charlie. <laughs> Tennis correspondent Charlie Eccleshare, do we need to, to count, these, count these goalkeepers down? This is very much my sweet spot. Um, te- the length of tennis matches has got insane. I wrote about this prior to Wimbledon, um, my alter ego covering tennis. Um, what's interesting about the shot clock in tennis is tennis matches have only got longer since it came in. And that's not because of it necessarily. But what you are seeing a lot of players do is using the absolute maximum of the 25 seconds because they know they have it, which would probably happen in football. What you also have is uh, referee, it's up. To, it's at the umpire's discretion as to when to start the shot clock. Um, and so he might decide it's been a particularly long rally or the fans make, uh, you know, let them celebrate. Uh, so there is an element of discretion and I imagine something similar would happen at football and you'd open up all sorts of conspiracy theories with people counting down and showing like, well, at Old Trafford, the referee allows this amount, but at uh, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, it's it's this amount. Um, so I don't think it would be the silver bullet, some would hope. It Maybe it would work uh, better than maybe it has done in tennis. Um, 
but it's it's a very it is very complicated. And I mean, I know there are people who want football to follow rugby's lead. Rugby stop the clock, um, you know, like on the TV broadcast and stuff. So you're getting what the referee is seeing. Um, and I know some people would want that as well. I mean, rugby matches as well have got so long. You know, they they take ages now, and and you don't see the stoppage time in the same way because it's just a stop clock. But you know, things like twelve minute stoppage time is. I don't think is that unusual in rugby. So yeah, it, it, it's a, it'd be interesting to see as an experiment to see this sort of stop clock idea. But I think it does have it tends to have unintended consequences, and that's a little bit what's happened in tennis. Ian talks about goal kicks in his question, but goal kicks have changed immeasurably in the past sort of you know ten years in terms of how important they are to a team playing out from the back now. And you know there are people whose job it is to to plan goal kicks now as well as all of the set pieces. They get the most attention from fans naturally because um, just because they do. But I'm sure uh, a defensive free kick or, you know, Arsenal's corner was highlighted a match of the day last night. I think it was, it was 27 seconds they took um, for the corner leading to their goal. So if, if you're going to do it for, for goal kicks, it's got to be for all set pieces really. But I agree with Charlie. I'm not sure how uh, workable it is. There's also, because Paul Heckingbottom's complaint, wasn't it, was that he was being kind of hustled in he felt that his goalkeeper was being hustled into doing things too quickly because their plan was to slightly react to what Spurs did uh in terms of whether they were going to go long or go short that sort of thing and I'm not you know I'm sure a lot of Spurs fans will say that's bullshit you were just wasting time I'm just saying what he was saying and I guess then you'd say with the stop clock well then you'd have teams might abuse the fact they know they have a limit by delaying what they did which then forced goalkeepers to play, but they, I don't know. It, it would be complicated. Heckenbottom came out and, and in very, very unemotional language laid all out. I thought it was absolute nonsense. Um, if, the, if the ball is in free play, you're always trying to stop the opposition doing what they want and to give them less time to do it. Why would it be any different just because you happen to have the ball still in front of you? The point was that Spurs were forcing Fodderingham to make decisions they didn't want to make in, in real time. What's he going to do? I mean, if Spurs then keep running around, can he can he just stand there for the rest of the half? Run down 15 minutes of the clock saying, sorry, no, I've got to... Hang on. Hold on a second <laughs> there. Manor Solomon moved. It's not cricket, mate. They don't have to take up positions that you then react to. No, no, he's moved again, ref. I'm going to take another 15 minutes over this. It was... Paul was frustrated and he wasn't being kind of mad about it, but he's wrong. That The whole point about... about, about Applying the press to goal kicks now, which is what's happening, is that it forces people to do something they don't want to do. And that's what defending is about in any part of the pitch. Uh, thank you very much for that question. Uh, Glenn T um, um, has he said, I walked past the, and he put the inverted commas, glamorous media entrance at the stadium. And it got me wondering what the match day routine is for Tim and Charlie. Tim, I mean, I'm sure it's incredibly glamorous in, involving being pampered before you go probably making your way to the stadium in some kind of sedan chair with each step of your journey, um, hand-picked flunkies um, strewing petals in your path. But uh, tell us t- tell us in case that's not true. He says glamorous media entrance. The actual entrance doesn't look great, sort of backing onto where we did our podcast uh, the other <laughs> week by uh, the back entrance to Sainsbury's car park. But yeah, the, the, if you walk past the front bit with its sort of glass front face and uh, it does look very plush inside, bars and nice seats, and it sort of looks like it doesn't look like a media room. 
if you walk past it. But yeah, no, um, the 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 routine can vary week to week. I actually was a little bit late on um, uh, Saturday because I was trying to watch the Wolves game uh, on the way to the ground. Obviously, you do, you do get there pretty early normally. I would say like two hours before kickoff. The sort of lots to uh prepare before a match you've got the team news coming in at two you've got to chat through your match idea with your editor because uh we all sort of go in with something in mind that we might want to uh, write about on the day and as charlie will know only about 25 percent of the time i spent a large chunk of my life editing i had no idea about that do you, do you not do you not just respond to what happens on the on the on the sward Famously for us, but you know we don't do match reports on the on the athletic. It's we, we do not do a blow by blow account of what just happened in the match because everybody else does that, and obviously we're a subscription website who tries to do things a little bit differently. So we're trying to attract people to read something that they may not have noticed and tell them something they don't know. But you can't decide that in advance. No, you can't. But there are so many matches. You know, some clubs might play sixty matches in a season. You know, and if, and if um, it's hard to come up with different ideas on the hoof straight away at full time. So the idea might be, for an example, of, of going in with the idea of specifically watching a player, perhaps. So you might go and watch you might watch James Madison for 90 minutes. And if it's if it's a boring game with very little sort of wow, big narratives that come out of it, then that will still quite work well. But like I said to Charlie, a lot of the time stuff that happens in games overtakes the idea that you that you go in with basically yeah I think it's to, it's it's partly Danny to ensure yourself if say Sheffield United on the weekend a bit of really forgettable 1-0 win and you're kind of like what am I going to talk about it helps that, that doesn't if, happen at Spurs you know that no yeah. no that, I, exactly thankfully or otherwise it doesn't so it helps in that situation to be is there anything I've been working on that's not so dependent on the game because also what's what I think is interesting with it is you can be accused of being too reactive. It's a really fine line because, you know, you don't want to just be off the back of reacting just to the back of what's happened in the game. But at the same time, it's mad. You know, something like Saturday, clearly you can go in with the best laid plans, but everything's ripped up because you have to reflect what all the fans are talking about. And that's, to a large extent, the emotion of the game and that sort of thing. But if you can pick something out... um, that's maybe a little different. I mean, like, for instance, my piece on Saturday about the game was a thought I had during it, which was kind of like, you know, welcome to being good against Spurs because when you're good, this is what teams are going to do to you. They're going to come, they're going to sit everyone behind the ball, they're going to waste every second of time because they're scared. Like, you, you know, in your last game, you battered Burnley, you've scored two in every Premier League game so far this season. And it remind, I, and I know to an extent it's ever been thus and, you know, always you're going to have newly promoted teams are going to play defensively against uh, the biggest teams in inverted commas. Um, But it reminded me a little bit of something happened with Pochettino Spurs when teams got wise to the fact that they were getting really good. And Spurs had a bit of an awkward transition to dealing with those games against suddenly these really defensive low blocks. And I can remember some quite often in that, uh, in sort of Pochettino's second season probably would have been, you know, after like Europa League games, there'd be sort of Sunday 2pm and it'd be quite flat. And you'd, and you'd have teams knowing that Spurs are really good and just defending incredibly deep. And, and this felt like it might be one of those games. So, yeah, that was a theme I sort of got into off the back of the game. What about, Glenn? I mean, I, I, I've been to New Stadium, of course, but my days of going to press boxes are long behind me. Um, some would say, thankfully. Um, what about the actual facilities? I mean, obviously, the, the Wi-Fi is better than it was at White Hart Lane. How could it be worse? Um, what's the grub like, Tim? 
Very, very, very good. Danny. It sort of changes from week to week, which is nice. You don't want the same meal every time. I I feel a bit weird talking about this. I don't, I don't really like... I think the idea of journalists get to stuff their face on like real like gourmet type foods. I don't know how Charlie feels, but I think it's a bit unedifying really. Like if you get to Chelsea and you see it's proper gourmet spread, like the Gorgonzola Noki I had at Chelsea. (laughs) Honestly, unbelievable. But then, you know, you you might glance at it a quarter to three as you're on your ATC and there's so much food left. It's like, really? Like what happens to all that like incredible food? Like, uh, I don't know. Um, But yeah, I think think a lot of journalists see that as the highlight of their... uh, of their well, day, don't forget, uh, I'm great friends with Ian Abraham, so I, I do know that for something that is literally the highlight of their career, um, whatever they serve up the grub. Listen, I hope, Glenn, I hope that's given you just a, a, a small vision of just how tough it is to be a top football journalist these days. Um, let's end then with, I don't know how funny people are trying to be here, but in the, in the, in the timeline of our uh, Twitter feed and in my own Twitter feed after the Sheffield United game, um, loads of people, Griezmann fan, Tim Eaton, uh, Sean Hurl, who regularly contributes, all saying, could we? Could we? Tim, could we? Sean, could we? Um, well, Tim, could we? I mean, you're going you're gonna to have to clarify the question. They're saying could Spurs win just, the title. Just, Come on, guy. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, people are being self-deprecating, I think, there, Charlie, yes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yes. Yeah, well, it's a little bit of like, uh, I don't know, we do this in life, don't we, where we dangle something out there, doing it with humour and the hope, but secretly hoping someone might sort of bite on it. But you you don't want to sort of make yourself too vulnerable. What I would say is that Spurs play Arsenal on Sunday and this time a year ago, Arsenal had won their first five games and it was very similar noises. And a lot of people were saying, don't be ridiculous. You're a team that didn't even get top four last season and you've beaten five not great teams back in your box. They obviously then did go on and challenge and a lot of people say they you know, they ultimately bottled the title. No, so they had a brilliant season, didn't they? Yeah. They had an amazing season. Yeah. But So what I'm saying is I don't think, you know, people would have thought they were being similarly ridiculous at that point to what Spurs, you know, and I know Spurs are coming from a lower point. Maybe they finished eighth, whereas Arsenal finished fifth the previous season. But... Um, yeah, it's, obviously it's it's an enormous ask. Let's see after this Sunday. I think that you know then we might have a bit better. Tell you what's wonderful about it that whether people are taking the Mickey or not in asking, or even taking the Mickey out themselves, the very idea that you might contemplate the question, never mind ask it, that shows yeah, the, the, exactly. the mood change, the mood change um, that, that, that of which that is reflective is extraordinary. Completely, and like you said, Danny, with you know, you've got to enjoy these wins. In a way, we spend so much of our time as, as fans proofing ourselves against disappointment. You know, whenever there's a corner for the opposition, it's, they're going to score. Oh, I just, I just know they're going to score. Or you know, you go into every game saying, "Oh, I've got a bad feeling about this." And so, in a way, you know, maybe this will be as good as it gets this season, where the Spurs have won four games and drawn one. All, 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 just kind of let yourself dream. And yeah, it, it, there's a teeny, there's a teeny chance probably, but. You mentioned Jamie Vardy. Stranger things have happened. This isn't me saying Spurs are going to win the no, league, no. by the way, before no, no, this is no, kind no. of rewritten. Uh, but yeah, let yourself dream. It did, did, did sound a little bit like that, Charlie. So, so <laughs> far, Postacoglu hasn't put a foot wrong PR-wise. And he was asked the same question about the Spurs fans over celebrating. And he said, that's their job. Let them get on with it. That's what they should do. It's his job. And the players should celebrate when they get a, a winner, you know, as, as the sun goes down uh, in September. Um, but it's his job. And his coach's job to make sure that that energy 
is bottled, but then realistically used. You know, you think Arsenal are going to sit on the edge of their box waiting for Spurs to have 29 shots at goal? They ain't. Um, but that's the game. And we'll see what happens. We'll talk about that more on Thursday when we'll be back. Let me just remind you, um, as I say, all those questions came and many others. And do keep them coming and don't get disappointed um, if we don't get them all on. It's just, it's just the nature of it, isn't it? Uh, we'll remind you that the show has its own official home on Twitter, at VFTL Podcast. And we have our own um, email. It's VFTL at theathletic.com uh, for simply the best Spurs coverage anywhere, including Tim and Charlie. Uh, make sure you sign up to The Athletic. Take advantage of our limited time offer, just £1 a month for 12 months. Simply go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to subscribe. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks for Natalie uh, to, for adding to the general gaiety of the nation. What a brilliant, brilliant result and what a brilliant, brilliant moment that was. Let's hope there's many more of them in the season to come. On Thursday, we'll be previewing the possibility of something brilliant happening at Arsenal. Bless you all. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.